This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November the 9th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio. Well, don't just AMI-tv. Let's hit the horns and go. Muscle memory. I've said AMI audio for so many years that it just naturally wants to roll off my tongue. But no more. Just AMI TV. Although I do find myself saying AMI audio a lot during the day in my defense. When I'm promoing Kelly and company. I'm talking about the mighty AMI audio podcast network or the walrus or McLean's magazine or double tap. The word AMI audio is still on my tongue and on my mind and in your ears, but let's focus on today's show. Adrian Castle from BCNs describes this year's wellness gathering for indigenous disability awareness month. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will join me as we discuss the Canada Disability Benefit. We'll talk about what we'd like it to look like and where it can go from here. And Kevin Shaw will share his perspective to Elon Musk's decision to axe Twitter's accessibility team. But let's get to our top story of the day. And all week long, we've been talking about the health ministers' meetings in British Columbia. Well, a meeting with Canada's health ministers has ended with no agreement after the federal government pulled out. The walkout was prompted after the premiers released a statement during the meetings. The statement repeated a call for the federal government to fund 35% of health care spending, up from the current 22%. Federal health minister Jean-Yves Duclos called the statement interference. Premiers are forcing my colleagues to speak only of one thing, and one thing only, money. All that premiers keep saying is that they want an unconditional increase in the Canada health transfer sent to their finance ministers. Duclos says there was still progress made during negotiations, even if there wasn't a formal agreement. That's not going to happen the same way we were expecting it would happen today. But the good news is, again, that we all agree on the priorities. If the premiers didn't impose marching orders on uh, my colleagues, health ministers, we would all, we'd all be together today and recognize the plan and the work ahead. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix says he understands the frustration from Duclos. Fair enough. They didn't uh, like that the premiers reiterated their position on the Canada health transfer. That's entirely fair of the federal government to do and their expression, but I think it's disappointing. I'm not sure it sends the best message. Dick says that more cooperation is needed between levels of government if the healthcare system is going to be revitalized. To succeed in the future, to build the healthcare system we need, we need the federal government to increase its role and support for public healthcare and not, as has been happening for too, too long, diminish that role. We need the spirit that we came together with under COVID-19 to be the spirit that we come together with in, uh, in addressing the issues around the Canada health transfer. The health ministers did discuss the shortage of children's painkillers. Karen Rebo has that element of the story. 
Health Canada issued an advisory early last month warning that children's ibuprofen and acetaminophen were in short supply due to unprecedented demand at retailers, pharmacies and hospitals. Duclos says the shortages were discussed in his meetings with provincial and territorial health ministers in Vancouver this week. He says supplies are increasing rapidly, but he admits not quickly enough to meet an expected winter surge in demand. He adds Health Canada officials are meeting with drug companies on an almost daily basis to secure access to the drugs. British Columbia's Health Minister Adrian Dix is urging parents not to hoard medications. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Let's get to the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. There were plenty of conversations had yesterday, but there was one story that I wanted to share with you. Nations are considering a more robust warning system to alert all countries of dangerous weather events. Inestila Katura explains. The new program, unveiled by the UN, aims to warn people in countries across the globe about the risk of climate-related disasters, such as severe flooding or storms, since many developing countries do not have access to such systems. Dubbed Early Warning for All, the program would cost roughly $3 billion and would be set up over the next five years, starting with the poorest and most vulnerable countries. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. All right, let's get to our daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Okay, before we put up the results, guys, I want to share the story here. I want to put people in the context. The biggest lottery prize in U.S. history finally has a winner. Renan Ali has more. The winning ticket for the jumbo jackpot worth $2.04 billion was sold at Joe's Service Center in Altadena. The store's owner, who came to the U.S. from Syria in the 80s, searching for a better life, will get $1 million just for selling the ticket. What are you going to do with that money? I'm going to spend it on my kids and my grandchildren. I have almost 11 grandchildren grandsons. You have 11 grandkids. The winner has yet to come forward, but under California law, they cannot remain anonymous. Oof. $2.04 billion. That is some serious scratch. And it was that amount of money that had us contemplating yesterday as part of the daily poll. What would you do if you won the lottery? And if we said, you said, we said, if you select other, you uh, better write in. So 22% of you said quit your job. 14% of you said travel. 50% of you said give back to the community. And 14% of you said other. We uh, had a few folks write in. James wrote in other, all of the above, plus buy a few houses and help some to pay off some mortgages, loans, and payments. We had Penny treat in or tweet in. Other, all of the above. Well, that's cheating, Penny. And Kent tweets, fund a charitable endowment. Definitely giving back to the community was a uh, theme we saw throughout that conversation yesterday about winning the lottery. And uh, congratulations to that two billionaire in California. Dave.Brown at AMI.ca if you want to drop me a line. I will do things for money. Let's uh, get over to today's daily poll at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Coming back to these federal health ministers meetings, the provinces are asking the federal government to increase the amount of money they receive for health care. If provinces want more money for health care spending, should they just raise taxes? Yes or no? I'm sure there's all kinds of complications in regards to raising taxes and, oh, this jurisdiction and that jurisdiction, that's how this works and that's not how that works and we can't do it this way or we can't do it that way. Get out of here. Provinces control their own tax policy. They can charge whatever they want in terms of their provincial taxes and they can call it a health care tax. 
and make sure that money goes right to the system. It seems preposterous to me that every time you want more money, you would just say to the federal government, gimme, 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 gimme. It's all tax dollars. You're simply just asking the federal government to raise that money from somewhere else or go into deficit somewhere else. If you want more money for your health care system, take it from your population. I agree the federal government should do more to help provinces and should send more money to provinces. But your sole solution can't just be gimme, 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 gimme. You have to take the political heat for raising taxes too. Looking at you, Saskatchewan, looking at you, Alberta, with your low tax rates. You want more money? Ask for more money. Yes. But also, be a partner in this and raise your own taxes. It's your system. Provinces are in charge of health care. And yes, the federal government does take on a lot of taxes. But over and over and over again, we find ourselves with levels of government saying, ah, can't do that unless another level of government gives us the money. Raise your taxes. Take the heat. That's what politics is. Can't just blame other people and say, no, no, we need their money. At the end of the day, tax dollars is tax dollars. Whether it's my money going to the federal government, the provincial government, the municipal government, it's still my money going out the door to a level of government. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, if you raised your own taxes, you could have more control over your own system. Ever think about that? Wexiters? Independencers? I'll give Quebec a lot of credit. Quebec has a very, very high tax rate, and they have a lot of shadow institutions that exist that are in duplicate of the federal government. But Quebec is not afraid to say, we'll put our name on this tax rate, and we'll take this money, and we'll invest it in our system. I'm not saying Quebec is perfect. It's far from it. That's why I live in Ontario. But at least politicians systemically in Quebec have the guts to go get their own cash. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about this, Dave, and it's funny because as you were talking about the provincial governments need to do more, they need to take more ownership. Well, you start to think, as you mentioned, you know, the different provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, you look at Ontario, a lot of them are conservative provincial uh, government. And so the last thing they ever want to do is have their name associated with any sort of tax increase. But you start to talk about, okay, the, the Wexit group, you, the, the independence group, especially in Alberta, Saskatchewan, places like this. It's like, okay, well, if you want to establish this independence, you, you want to break away from the federal government, the institutions that you feel are, are kind of overreaching, having that oversight, you kind of have to establish something for yourselves. And part of that is healthcare. I, I don't think that, uh, uh, Albertans, Saskatch uh, uh, people of Saskatchewan would be in favor of just not having any health care. You know, they they want a good, robust system. And if you want to be more and more independent, that means more funding needs to go from your own pockets to support it. You can't be as reliant on the federal government if you want to be as independent as you want to be. So I, I, I understand, you know, the desire to be like, okay, raise taxes. It's also like one probably the worst times to no one would ever really want to be raising taxes right now just because of how the the cost of living inflation all these other issues that people are facing but there's got to be somewhere you can move money around the federal government does it all the time finding ways to allocate different funds to different locations so well it was large you know, it, the last couple of years was largely just taking on obscene amounts of debt that, it was, was, that was the way it, they, it was. They, they wasn't moving around money it was just give me more debt let's sell let's sell more canada savings bonds Yes, exactly. That That is a very fair point. So 
I, I think, though, it's like, you know, clearly healthcare is an issue. This is an issue that all Canadians are, are really pointing to. It's like, we need to fix this because this is something that's essentially broken at this point. You know, we, we have short staffs. We have hospitals that are closing due to, you know, just a, a lack of, of supports. And, you know, we're getting into colder winter months. And this is going to be a cycle that's going to continue as our population ages and more and more people would retire and require more more health care. So it's something that needs to be addressed. Taxes is always a very direct way that you can go about doing it. Again, I want to reiterate the difference here. We're talking about an increase from 22% to 35%. That's not an imaginary number. That's not a small number. And to say that simply this should just come from federal dollars, again, where does that money come from? It's either more debt or more taxes for the federal government. At so- Somebody's taxes are going to go up here if, if you're talking about this in realistic in realistic terms or debts going up or deficits are going up. Like, like money is not an imaginary concept as much as some people like to pretend it is. Eliza Rocco, what do you think? I know the passion is running deeper. My blood's boiling a teensy <laughs> bit this morning. But what do you make of the idea of, hey, if you're a province, you want better health care? Raise your own taxes. Yeah, it, it's, it's really, there's no... There's no yes or no to this. It's a somewhere in between. No, you must just you must choose. (laughs) But nobody wants their taxes to raise. But also, we need healthcare. We need hospitals to run. People need to be taken care of. So, as as much as I, I do think part of the answer lies in raising taxes, somewhat the federal government needs to step in desperately like as i said yesterday we we have run out of time on this issue mm-hmm. like we need mm-hmm. to get these things fixed now right now and i mean to me it's relief from the federal government sounds like a faster way of doing this and maybe it starts there but there has to be some push and pull from both sides and from what it sounds like yesterday like you said it was just the premier saying gimme 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 and none of the oh we'll give how about we do this how about we raise the taxes here there was no push and pull from yeah that. see that's i think that's a really well put point by you saying perhaps there should be an injection of federal money right because we're talking yeah. about a big number so perhaps the big number comes from an injection of the federal government, but again, conditionally, right? One of the conditions that they laid out was we just want more transparent health data. That's one of the things we want you to do as a province. We want you guys to have more transparent health data available so we can actually, people and we can actually register tangible results, right? That seems like a reasonable thing. But again, yeah, as you say, maybe the short term is here's some flush, here's a flush of cash to try and bridge some of these gaps. But you must promise to introduce a one or 2% tax hike that could be again called the healthcare tax, or it could be on sales tax. Hey, guess what? The price of beer just went up by 25 cents because every can of beer, that 25 cents is now going to the healthcare system. And that's fine by me. I'll uh, pay an extra 25 cents on beer if it means that uh, I can get my broken bones looked after. In yeah, the hospital. after That'd I fall great. over from drinking too many of those beers, saving the healthcare exactly. system. Eliza, thank you for your thoughts on this one. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. You can also send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And I'm very comfortable with you reaching out and saying, Dave, you're oversimplifying the issue. Stop it. If that's fair, I'll accept that criticism. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, 
It's mainly cloudy with a chance of flurries and wind gusts up to 90 kilometers per hour in some places. A special weather statement is in effect due to high waves along the coastline. The high is three. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly sunny, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of six. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny and a high of eight. In Ottawa, Ontario, sunny with nine as the high. In Toronto, Ontario, Arguably the best uh, weather across the country today, it's sunny and a high of 11. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, showers off and on today with a high of 9. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high there, negative 1. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning and negative 17 is the high. Over to Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, but the high is only negative 16. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and negative 17 is the high there. Over to Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, there's periods of snow today with up to two centimeters expected and minus nine is the high. Vancouver, BC, it's sunny with a high of four. And finally in Victoria, BC, it's sunny and six is the high. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. November is Indigenous Disability Awareness Month, and the BC Ends is going to be having a wellness gathering next week to market. Adrian Castle will tell you all about that. But first, Karen Rebo has your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index closed higher yesterday, buoyed by strength in base metals and utilities. Toronto's TSX index gained 114 points to 19,660. New York's Dow Jones average rose 333 points and the Nasdaq added 51. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 155 points. The December gold contract closed over $35 higher yesterday at $1,716 U.S. an ounce. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.46 cents U.S. Maple Leaf Food says it was hit by a cyber attack over the weekend and that its IT division is still working to recover the integrity of the system. Chief Executive Michael McCain says problems remain as their business continuity teams figure out process-by-process manual workarounds. And Twitter's new owner and Tesla CEO Elon Musk has sold nearly $4 billion worth of Tesla shares from November 4th to 8th. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. November is Indigenous Disability Awareness Month. To mark the 8th anniversary, a wellness gathering will be taking place next week in Victoria. It's put on by Indigenous Disability Canada and the British Columbia Aboriginal Network on Disability Society. Joining me now to tell you more is Adrian Castle, BCN's Gathering Coordinator. Hey, Adrian, thank you for making time for us today. We're grateful. Wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. So tell me a bit about this gathering. Who is it bringing, to, who is it bringing together? Oh, gosh, there is a lot. Um, just by uh, starting out um, the appetite 
uh, for the gathering this year is uh, phenomenal and it's definitely uh, taken us a little bit by surprise, but we are very delighted to, um, to, to have so much interest. Um, it's a national gathering, so we've got people coming from across Canada to join us, which is really exciting. What are some of the activities and conversations that will go into a wellness gathering like this? This one, we it's a full three days, um, and it's uh, basically an all-inclusive kind of uh, conference. So um, our delegates will be um, enjoying uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We're going to be having um, multiple fireside chats uh, a day. We have um, an awards gala in the evening, and then just a whole lot of fun stuff in between. We have uh, 38 uh, exhibitors who are going to be joining us. So um, there's lots of opportunity for networking and conversation, which is really exciting. Some of the topics that we are going to be touching on is uh, Canada Disability Benefit. Uh, we're going to be touching on MAID, uh, UNDRIP, and then uh, accessibility. We also have some great guest speakers who are going to be presenting as well. Um, we've got Community Living BC, we've got Don Canada, we have CBC uh, talking about their program that they have going on, and we also have um, Caregiving Excellence who's going to be speaking to, to their topics as well. So it's going to be a well-rounded uh, full three days, which we're very excited about. That's going to be a jam-packed agenda, and there's going to be a lot of takeaways from folks to uh, be part of this one. Adrian, I, I hope you don't feel like perhaps I'm I'm beating a dead horse in regards to this, because we've certainly been getting a return to in-person events for a couple of months now in earnest. But what do you think it means to be able to bring together so many people from across the country in person, as opposed to on a Zoom conference or in a Teams meeting? Right. We decided um, to make this an in-person face-to-face event, so we are actually not going to be um, streaming it or, or providing it uh, in that capacity, which uh, we wanted to make sure that, you know, people are back together. They have that face-to-face -face opportunity. They're networking. Um, and due to some of the content of the Fireside Chats also, you know, being sensitive um, by nature that we wanted to keep that um, inclusive to, to the participants that were going to be there and the speakers that would be speaking. So um, yeah, it's great to just see how many people are excited and um, comfortable with making the, the, the trip across Canada to join us, which is great. To me, there's an intimacy that goes along with events like this that you that you just can't replicate in the online space. So it is it is nice to see the opportunity for people to meet face to face and share those connections and share those conversations. Adrian, when you were mentioning some of the topics of discussion that are going to come up along the way, they're ones that we talk about on the show a lot. Certainly the Canada Disability Benefit is one that we've explored extensively and we'll actually be exploring later in the show today as well. Um, things like medical assistance and dying and how that impacts the disabled community is one that we're very cognizant of as well. As we take a look more broadly at Indigenous Disability Awareness Month, what are some of the broader issues that, that are facing the community when it comes to disability and the Indigenous experience? That's such a big question. So um, where I can speak to um, and where um, BCAMS is, is focusing is um, Indigenous Disabilities Awareness Month is actually our eighth anniversary and um, 
it was it's amazing to be a part of such a great organization as they are the ones that had um I guess created, declared it, and BC um, recognized it um, back in 2015. So since then we've had Saskatchewan and Manitoba join us. We um, have even gone as far as to be international and have a community in New Zealand um, that joined us in 2021. So I feel like the the um, awareness and knowledge um, is is coming. Um, we hope our goal is to have you know more provinces across uh, Canada join us and also recognize the month of November. Um, so we hope that that's um, going to come in the future and that you know being international um, is exciting as well and and hopefully we have some some new um, people that will be joining us uh, in the near future so that's really exciting um, and again it's the conversations that we need to have we need to have that awareness we need to have um, safe places for these these conversations and we hope that all of that is going to be provided at the, the gathering um, we're very excited to have the legislative buildings um, light up in red for the three days of um, the gathering, which is November 15th, 16th, and 17th. So I feel that that is, um, you know, one more check uh, on the awareness list. So um, slowly but surely we, we will get there, but um, mm. momentum is there for sure. As you mentioned, that there's a lot of momentum building and the advocacy goes well beyond either an individual day, an individual event, an individual awareness month. Where should people be going to follow along with the work that you and your colleagues at Beacons are doing in regards to uh, advocacy work programs? Because I know there's a lot that you and your colleagues are offering up. Absolutely. Our website is the best place. Um, and then also um, regarding the gathering, checking our gathering website. Um, and you can, it's easy to find it's Indigenous Disabilities Gathering. Um, and as we move forward, um, you know, keeping updates posted there, we also have the IDAM um, website as well with awareness on there. So just, you know, being familiar with it, starting to use it in your everyday language, getting people familiar with it um, is, is the best starting place. Adrian, I know it's uh, no small feat putting together uh, an event like this and trying to coordinate folks from all across the country. So I hope the next week goes really smoothly, getting everybody across the country to the meeting points. And I hope the three days uh, bring about a lot of meaningful conversation and a lot of interesting conversation. And uh, we'll touch base with you again down the road. Wonderful. Thank you, Dave. And uh, this has been a great opportunity to, to get more awareness out there. So I appreciate the invitation. That's Adrian Castle, gathering coordinator for the BCNs or BC BCNs, which the Indigenous Disability and Wellness Gathering is taking place at the Victoria Conference Centre in Victoria, BC on November 15th to the 17th. And for more information, as mentioned, you can visit Indigenous Disability gathering.com indigenous disability gathering.com coming up after the break we'll catch up with clover thursday we'll talk a little bit about sonic art and asmr so art for your ears instead of your eyes this is now with dave brown on ami
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. You can experience art with more than just your eyes. You know that. I've done a couple stories over the years about tactile arts while I've been with AMI. A few months ago, we spoke with Clover Thursday about how taste is a fundamental part of culinary arts. Well, what about art for your ears? And no, I'm not talking about music. I'm talking about sonic art, sound installations, and ASMR. So let's talk about more about the artistic merit of sound with Clover Thursday. Hey, good morning, Clover. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. So, Clover, what do you dig about sonic art? You know, it's funny because it's very, it's not even recent because I've definitely noticed just such such a power and value in sonic art. But especially recently, I've just noticed just like how, you know, it's a new medium and it's just another tool for, you know, artists to experiment with and to get more and more points across. And even just recently, just more like a sort of a more professional sense of just doing some jury work for like, you know, local Hamilton, the local city of Hamilton and things. Well, it's it's something that's new. It's something that's fresh and funny enough. Like it really lends itself really well to like public art and like reaching kind of a lot of people. Um, and funny enough, like when we did some jury work, we 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 absolutely gravitated to a sonic artist um, who did you know most of their installation was sonic art. It had visual elements as well, but the the concept really lot like laid in the sounds like each kind of um, visual piece made and things. I know. I think it's just a very exciting medium. I I find it interesting you used the word you were drawn to it. You were drawn to the sound. Do you think people Mm -hmm. underestimate how important sound is in how we experience content? Absolutely. I think think we don't notice it until it's not there. And then we're just like, wait a minute. Like the amount of just things that are enhanced with uh, music or sound effects or folly work even – um, and folly work is kind of the idea of like um, sound effects um, and like things that aren't music, but like enhancing footsteps or things like that. And like it, it adds to everything. And um, even I think a couple months ago, this is this is a throwback to another to now with Dave Brown, when I was talking about um, the Van Gogh um, exhibit, which was more of a multimedia situation. They had this beautiful soundtrack that was going through everything. Um, throughout the whole exhibit and it really added to it and I don't think it would be the same without that the extra things and the extra sound effects they did when you know um, they were talking about the letter writings and things like that um, Van Gogh had with his like uh, confidants so it's just like I think it's something that you know we overlook until it's not there Mm. yeah to me it's it's texture right it's it's the things that we can experience sort of Uh, passively and it really just engages us and it's a shared experience as we go to places like youtube some of the most popular videos are asmr videos essentially capturing raw sound or real sounds and really focusing on that sound isolating those sounds so if you were to pop over onto a place like youtube and start listening to some amr do you have a high-end set of headphones or a sweet speaker for stuff like that? <laughs> I feel like I should, but <laughs> I, I think um, I have, like, a, a mid-to-high pair of headphones, like, mainly because, like, I know even, like, just generally when I listen to music, I like listening, being able to hear, like, all of the music. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just, like, miss 
miss entire parts of a song when you don't have really great headphones. Um, so I, I have a pair of headphones that like at least ca- capture a decent sound range. Um, um, I've also been slowly getting into because I like, especially like those kind of more atmospheric things. I like listening to them while laying down. So I started getting into. I, I think they're so funny. They're like, like like a sleeping mask or a headband, but they have like headphones in them. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm a chronic side sleeper, so it's like I have these wonderful headphones, but like trying to like lay down with them. <laughs> so I, I started really looking into those. I'm like, the sound quality, depending on how high you're willing to go, isn't perfect, but because they sit in your ear a little better, it's it's kind of nice. <laughs> the uh, one of the running jokes on the show is that I only buy cheap electronics, so I only buy like <laughs> low end headphones and whatnot. But I they get the job done. But it is remarkable that when you do have a piece of equipment or technology that is built specially for sound or specializes in sound, the difference that you can hear is remarkable. I know last year I finally uh, after my old TV finally bit the bit the bullet after like eight years. I bought a new one, and the TV. <laughs> Itself. I mean, I didn't buy like the super duper 4K HD, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm blind. I don't need it. <laughs> but the thing <laughs> is, is the company that made the TV is Pioneer, which was known for years and years for making sound equipment. And it was so wild the first time I fired up a particular video game that I'd been playing for like a decade. And all of a sudden you could hear all this ambient sound coming in because the speaker system in the TV was built to capture spatial and ambient sound and it just changes your whole experience the immersion just changes completely that's so cool yeah it's it's absolutely i felt that way because i used to be like that i'll just like out of spice and like you know earbuds to the dollar store and, stuff. and then like actually getting some half decent headphones suddenly like wow i can like hear things and like my favorite songs that i've never heard before yeah. oh you know, there's an instrument like that, that i haven't heard yeah. before <laughs> listen to that yeah <laughs> Like, <laughs> Let, let's come back to natural sound and, and ambient sound. And, and I, I love asking this question anytime we discuss sound because I have a whole bunch of favorite sounds. A couple nominations that I put forward would be like running water, whether that's like a babbling brook or the sound of water lapping upon the shore. So sort of that wave sound. Uh, the sound of a knife dragging across freshly toasted bread. Oh, my gosh. I love that sound. For sports world, the crack of a baseball bat. It like, doesn't matter if you're sitting in the back row of the Rogers Center. When that bat hits that ball, you hear it, and it just it pierces the air. What about you, Clover? What are some of those favorite sounds? If you're going to go to YouTube or go to uh, like a sound effects library, what are you searching out? You know, it's funny. Um, I feel like a lot of people water in the thing because I, I love the um, – like almost stereotypical. I love the idea of like ocean waves. Like I think that's just so calming and like wonderful. So I really like the idea of ocean waves. I love not the crackling of fire, but like, you know, like when you light a candle and it's like, you hear that like little like hissing. Yes. Yes. It's just a very delicate sound, but I love it. It's like a very, it's very calming to me. Um, And just because I guess I'm just a wild extrovert. I, I love almost like, when I'm somewhere and I just kind of hear the like ambient, like sound of just people. Like it's also, it's kind of cool. And you're kind of like further away and you can just sort of hear like life happening around you. Like I love like going to like a busy park and just like kind of sitting down, like in the shade, maybe usually in the warmer months, 
in the shade or something and just kind of hearing life happen just kind of at a distance mm. um and i love like hearing like almost like when you have like a hardwood floor or something oh. i'm actually funny in my apartment we have like these old hardwood floors and i love it just like when you like drop something and it like rolls across it yeah 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 <laughs> all that... the like bumps and things <laughs> there's there's like a firmness but there's texture to the bump so you hear the little th- yeah 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 i love that yeah the sound of like a shoe uh, like a shoe hitting a hardwood floor as well like not a soft not a soft uh uh, not a soft shoe, but a hard shoe hitting hitting a hardwood floor too. Oh my gosh, so so great! Uh, what about the sound of a boot uh, stepping into fresh snow? Whoa! Oh, that's nice. No, that's like a nice part of winter. Like I'm not a fan of winter, but those are like that, those moments that are like ah yes. Just yeah, I can, <laughs> I can tolerate a little bit of this one. It, you, Clover, you mentioned the water thing. One of the uh, allegedly easiest side hustles in the world for people who have any conception of graphic, of like a video editing, is to just get the sound of waves on repeat and just get a nice little picture of water, post that on YouTube, and you could get millions of views and pick up a side hustle purely on just people w- watching your water video on YouTube. <laughs> Dave, I think it's time. Yeah, business business <laughs> advice over here with Dave Brown making some quiche on a Wednesday on a Wednesday yeah. morning. Uh, Clover, let's wrap up here because I think I mentioned it in the intro, right? People would say, "Oh, art for your ear—that's music, right?" Where do you maybe start drawing the line or considering other forms of sonic art? Like, for example, would you consider a radio play to be sonic art? Absolutely, um, honestly, and that's almost some of my like favorite almost forms of sonic art. Um, I think it's like super accessible. Like a lot of the times you can find like these radio shows or podcasts or things like that, like YouTube or all those are, I don't know. I, I, I'm not an Apple, huge Apple music person, but I think that's a thing. And there's all these different applications where you can find these things. And I think there's so much really good stuff that's like done with so much intention and like art direction and thought that like they really are art pieces of their own. And there's a lot, a lot of ones that I really enjoy so I like I absolutely consider like radio plays and radio shows and like podcasts and things like that with um with the with certain like artistic visions or like strong artistic visions absolutely works of art of works of sonic art. Yeah, absolutely. Hey Clover, this was a neat one. Thank you for proposing it, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's community artist Clover Thursday coming up. After the break, oh no, wait, hold on one second. Before we get to the coming up after the break, I do want to remind you that we have a special programming note coming your way Friday on Remembrance Day. Join AMI join AMI for live described coverage of the CBC's Remembrance Day ceremony from the National War Memorial in Ottawa. Hosted by Rosemary Barton, the CBC News special Remembrance Day airs Friday, November the 11th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time right here on AMI-tv. So that'll be a described broadcast of the CBC broadcast and the ceremony going on in Ottawa. And of course, as you just heard, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv is when that broadcast starts. So that is actually going to preempt this show. So we'll be here till about 9.57 or so on Friday in the morning, and then we'll hand things over to CBC. We will still have a second hour of the show that will pop up during the course of our repeat broadcasts later in the day, as well as for the podcast later on. But we thought it was really important to step aside and make sure we showed you the full broadcast from the National War Memorial in Ottawa. So 
please, November the 11th, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv, please join us for that special described broadcast of CBC News' Remembrance Day 2022. Coming up after the break, Shani Saravanamuthu will tell you about the 70th annual Santa Claus Parade in Montreal. It must be Christmas. But first... A few social media platforms are growing as Twitter users look for something different. Michelle Franzen has more in Tech Trends. Recent turmoil at Twitter has prompted some to explore other options. Gizmodo's Del Cameron says a platform called Mastodon added nearly a half a million users in the last two weeks. It's almost identical to Twitter in every way that really matters. It's, um, you know, you follow other users, their posts appear in a timeline. Mastodon's equivalent of a tweet is called a toot. Toots are limited to 500 characters, more than Twitter's 280. And there's another big difference, too. Like Twitter, uh, Mastodon's running on on a countless number of servers, except those servers are all owned by different people. Each owner sets the rules for their individual server, and Cameron says there are thousands to choose from. There are servers for programmers, scholars, artists, writers, gamers, and so on. But regardless of which one you join, they're all able to communicate uh, with, with one another. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franz on ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's catch up with community reporter Shiny Saravanamuthu in Montreal. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, Shiny. If there's one thing Montreal does better than pretty much anywhere else on the continent, it's food. And for foodies in Montreal, they're going to have a very interesting opportunity coming up here with the Montreal à Table event, the MTL à Table event taking place until November the 13th. So what's on the menu for foodies in Montreal? Absolutely everything that you can think about. I, they have, it's from November 3rd to 13, and it's a great way to like try out restaurants that you normally wouldn't because they're on the pricier end because they do have set menus up to three to four courses uh, from starting from $35, $45, $55, and $75, depending on the restaurant. So it's a great way to actually like meet up with your friends who haven't seen in a long time and like go out and have a really good meal on a budget. Well, quote unquote budget. Why do you think an event like this or I'm even going to call it a festival like this is so important in terms of the food community? Especially since COVID, I think this is a great way for restaurants to kind of pick up again because people have been eating at home or doing takeout and going to a restaurant itself is an experience, the ambiance, the service. So I think this is a great way for also restaurants to showcase what people have been missing out for for the last two years. So I think it's really important for that industry to have an event like this, uh, just to showcase that and for people to kind of realize what they've been missing out for. And for me, it's just like when you're in a restaurant and you have really good service, uh, you're more likely to go back. Yeah. To me, I also think think about the component of like tearing down some of the barriers to fine dining. So often Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that with like classical music or theater or things that are considered sort of haute couture, like high culture, mm-hmm. this is a way of saying, no, no, no. You like, you, no, I'm not saying $35 or $45 or $75 is nothing, but for a really good meal and for a really yeah. interesting experience, that's a chance for people to broaden their horizons. 
Exactly. Something that you normally wouldn't go try or normally wouldn't be able to. This is a great way to go try it out and say that you've been able to experience it. So I think it's a great way to have everyone try something out like this. And let's be clear, you can rack up a $75 bill at Peel Pub too. You don't need to uh, you don't need to go to somewhere uh, for high cuisine to rack up a high bill. Uh, Sh- Shiny is there <laughs> Shiny is there a, a particular restaurant calling your name as part of this festival? Honestly, there's so many that uh, I've been kind of struggling to make reservations just because if I find one, uh, it's kind of like not in the time zone, like timetable that I want. So right. now like my, my to-do list is to figure out something for this Saturday. Uh, at this point, I'm not picky because I don't think I can be picky. <laughs> <laughs> I got to this one um, also because my timing is different, but I'm open to uh, like Mediterranean food, Italian food, and like Mexican food are kind of my go-to. Indian food I always have, so like I'm going to opt out on that one this time. So Italian, Mexican, or like even Greek. So there, there should be no shortage of Mediterranean yeah. food available to you in Montreal <laughs> if, I have, if my life experience has anything to me yeah. Yeah, through and through. Uh, Shiny, let's move on to something a little bit different. I'm just going to mention to folks, uh, the Montreal à Table runs from now until November the 13th. And if you want to learn more, you can visit MTLA. T-A-B-L-E dot M-T-L dot org. So Montreal, M-T-L at table dot M-T-L dot org for more information on that one. And that'll go on the blog after the show as well. A-M-I dot C-A slash now. Shiny, I always feel like when we're approaching Christmas season, you're one of the first people who's all over it. So you wanted to give us a bit of a primer for the 70th Santa Claus Parade taking place on November 19th. So really uh, coming up, coming up quite quickly here. Yeah, I'm like so excited. I've already planned my whole day of what I'm doing and how I'm going to be there. But so I'm a little Christmas freak as all of you have known in the past two years. Um, and I made sure to make time for it in the middle of all this wedding planning. But yeah, so there's going to be a parade. Uh, I, I don't believe we had one last year because I didn't go. So I don't think we did. <laughs> so, um, so it starts off at 11 a.m. on the Saturday uh, at St. Catherine West. Um, I suggest getting there by Metro because parking is going to be a mess with all the road closures. Oh, yeah. and with oh, yeah. People that are there so if you can find somewhere else to park take the metro down and just be it's easier and fingers crossed it's not so cold uh, on the 819 um and there are other uh, christmas markets and festivals slowly opening up around the area um if you do go to noelmontreal.com they have all the breakdowns of all the markets when they're open what's available uh so if uh, even if you're an adult or have a child is an excuse for you to come out mm-hmm. uh just you know and you get to see all the different like businesses and all of them take part take part in the parade as well um and there's uh there's this new restaurant called La Rangerie. I couldn't find their menu or full details, but I came across them on the Noel website. They seem to have uh, all year, like till Christmas, uh, like a holiday brunch menu. And then they have like an afternoon tea slash fondue uh, from like 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. And then from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., they have Christmas dinner. So Oh I, my gosh. Yeah, so I made reservations for the 19th for the afternoon tea. So like, 
kind of like before and after the parade. Um, so I guess next time we speak, I can let you guys know once I, because their website doesn't really give much details, but I think it's so awesome that someone is doing like a Christmas restaurant. Oh my gosh. Stuffing so, every night. Turkey, turkey and stuffing every <laughs> night. Like talk to my language. As Chinese, of course, we don't drive, right? We're, we're blind. We're, we're not yeah. drivers. But I would tell anybody, if you're going to downtown Montreal, if you're going to be between the corner of Atwater and René Levesque and Montréal and St. Denis, just leave the car. Like, don't don't even yeah. try to bring your car through that quadrant. Oh. There's no points. Yeah, or, like, if you can park it, like, near Namur or something and just take the metro, like, something, because it's going to be it's gonna be frustrating. You don't want to feel like that when there's yeah. Christmas around. So just be at peace. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be in Montreal that weekend. I did not realize the Santa Claus parade was happening, uh, so I, I'm going to have to figure out how my day is going to play out. Uh, Shiny, do you have a particular <laughs> spot where you like to hunker down for the parade? Like, is there a particular corner of St. Catherine where, you, where you're like, this is where Shiny is for the parade? I usually get out of like the Eaton Center area and I kind of stand there because like if it does get too crowded, you can kind of, or it gets too cold, you can kind of go into the mall and then come back. <laughs> That's a good point. So, yeah. So, and being close to like restrooms, uh, I kind of like to be in the middle of the parade just because it's more happening and you're not waiting for someone to come or like, you know, it's not towards the end, you know? So the middle is usually where I like to be. That's a, that's a good Good idea. I like that one. <laughs> well, Shiny, uh, next time you're on, like you said, uh, give us that review of that uh, Christmas-themed restaurant. I can oh, see how that one might be a little bit popular amongst the yeah. uh, Christmas-oriented folks. And in the meantime, enjoy your time at the parade. Uh, you will not see me there. I will be trying to avoid St. Catherine Street, even though I'll be <laughs> staying very close to St. Catherine Street. That's going to compromise my whole Saturday the 18th, but we'll find a way. We'll find a way to manage. Great. <laughs> That's Shiny... <laughs> Bye, take care. Bye, Shiny. That's Shiny Saravanamuthu, community reporter in Montreal. And again, the uh, Santa Claus Parade taking place on November the 19th. 19th from 11 a.m. Eastern Time on St. Catherine Street between Guy and Jean Mans. Oh, well, that's good. I'm going to be staying just, uh, just a little bit west of Guy. So I'll be able to avoid the chaos. I'll, I'll just hang out in Atwater all day. Oh, I'll go to St. Henry. That's all I'll get away. I'll get to say Henri. Uh, Montreal, centreville.ca for a little bit more information. And of course, if you want more information or you got caught in the middle of my ramblings and you're like, what's Dave talking about? Head over to ami.ca slash now. That's where you'll find all the details you need. ami.ca slash now. Let's wrap up the hour with a news story. Let's get to some news about the U.S. midterm elections. There's actually still a bunch of stuff up in the air. But Donna Warder has some info about the race in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman flipped a Republican-controlled Senate seat and beat GOP opponent Dr. Mehmet Oz. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue. But we did what we needed to do. Democrats were also successful in governor's races, winning in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. But Republicans have held on to governor's mansions in Florida, Texas, and Georgia, where incumbent Brian Kemp won re-election, defeating Stacey Abrams in a rematch of their 2018 race. I'm Donna Water. So, again, as mentioned, there's still a couple races here that are significantly up in the air, too close to call. So let's talk about these three Senate races in Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. The Democratic candidates are currently leading in Arizona and Georgia. So in Arizona, Mark Kelly has 51.4% 
of the votes with only 66% of polls reporting. And we have in Georgia, Raphael Warnock with a slight lead at 49.4% with 98% of polls reporting. But Georgia's a bit weird. If no one gets 50%, that's going to go to a runoff election, which will occur again in a couple of weeks. So this might be hanging for some time. We also have uh, Adam Laxalt, who is leading for the Republicans in Nevada with 49.9%, with 72% of polls reporting. And it looks like Ron Johnson is going to win in Michigan at 50.5%, with 99% of polls reporting. But uh, if there's polls, for example, in Detroit or Flint that haven't gotten in yet, that could be why they're waiting to call that one from the Associated Press. And just one more note in regard to that U.S. election. Looks like Republicans are going to control the House. The question is by how much, as there's still a handful, a couple dozen seats that have not had their votes tallied just yet. I've got to say, as many times as Canadians might look enviously upon the United States, on their election days, I'm never envious. The fact that it takes three, four, five days, and in the case of Georgia, potentially weeks to decide who wins an election, I think our Canadian system is on to something with just a couple senior citizens pulling paper ballots out of boxes and literally counting them together. Because we always know who wins. By like one in the morning, we can go to bed like knowing who our premier is or who our prime minister is. The American system, a little bit wonky. Of course, America, a little bit wonky. That could be the uh, theme of the whole country. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update and Brock Richardson will be here for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, November the 9th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we once again consider the Canada disability benefit making its way through the halls of Parliament. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will share their perspective. And Kevin Shaw has thoughts on Elon Musk's decision to axe Twitter's accessibility team. So we shared that news with you yesterday. We'll do a little bit of analysis with Kevin in a couple of minutes' time. But before we get to any of that, let's get to the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, where BC's agriculture minister says the province is working with farmers in Sumas Prairie and Fraser Valley areas to reduce flood risks. Minister Lana Popham says most dairy farmers and poultry farmers are operating as usual after last year's storm, but the risks of major weather events, the risk of major weather events persists. We know these extreme weather events uh, related to climate are going to continue. So we're looking at new programs that will help fund climate adaptation and mitigation projects. At the peak of last year's flooding, more than 1,100 farms were under evacuation order or alert, and 150 square kilometers of farmland were swamped. Let's head over to the prairies where Alberta Premier Danielle Smith won the by-election in Medicine Hat Brooks last night and will return to the legislature. In her victory speech, Premier Smith took aim at leader of the NDP. Rachel Notley could have fought for you, but she made a different choice. She chose to go along to get along. She chose to abandon the hundreds of thousands of Albertans to higher energy costs in order to seek the approval, for some reason, of the Trudeau Liberals. She made her choice, and be sure you remember that, 
when you mark your choice on the ballot when we get into the general election next year. Smith picked up over 50% of the votes in the riding. Over to Ontario, where Toronto's Board of Health has asked the city's top doctor to consider reinstating mask mandates amid a surge in viral illnesses that are sending children to hospital in increasing numbers. The request came one day after the chief of staff at an Ottawa Children's Hospital urged a urged a board to return to indoor masking as the flu, COVID-19, and the RSV virus circulate. The board has passed a motion asking Toronto's top doctor, Dr. Eileen Davila, to explore all avenues toward reissuing mask mandates, starting with schools. Davila says they are following provincial guidelines, which do not require masks in most settings, but the city could change course if the situation calls for it. And then over to Atlantic Canada where Empire remains tight-lipped about computer system issues that are preventing customers from accessing prescriptions at their pharmacies. Issues at Empire-operated pharmacies, including Sobeys and Lawton's Drugs, were first reported over the weekend, and some locations in Halifax continue to have post signs warning customers of the ongoing problem. The Nova Scotia-based company issued a brief statement on Monday confirming that an IT system affected certain pharmacies and has caused difficulties in filling prescriptions. Empire did not respond to questions about the cause of the IT problem and has not said when it expects to be resolved. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of sports with Brock Richardson. So, Brock, you gave us a teaser yesterday. You said you had a big announcement coming down the pipeline on the neutral zone. I'm sitting here on the edge of my toes, the edge of my seat. Brock, what's going on? So, I announced yesterday that I will be the MC for the Ontario Blind Sports Hall of Fame Gala, taking over for Kelly McDonald, who uh, decided, at least for this year, to uh, pass the baton. He will be in attendance, but that is what's going on. And it's taking place this Saturday um, in Brentford, Ontario. And I'm looking forward to it. Very cool, buddy. Congratulations. Have you, have you emceed an event like this before? We, uh, Kelly and I did what we call 50, 50 in 2019. So we were both uh, up there together doing it, which was kind of fun because uh, Kelly's a friend and a mentor of mine. So we kind of, Got to crack a few jokes at each other and uh, do all that. So this year I will be flying solo with uh, Kelly in attendance. And I'm going to be saying that if I do well, I will pat myself on the back. If I don't, I will point directly at Kelly because he's the guy I learned it all from. So There you go. Take credit for your successes and blame others for your failures. That's the kind of accountability we like around these parts. Hey, Brock, let's uh, turn over to the world of the NHL. The Vancouver Canucks picked up a nice win over the Ottawa Senators last night, six to four. However, that win has not dampened some concerns around the team after their uh, president of hockey operations, Jim Rutherford had some, uh, let's call them nasty words for the team. Yes, he did. Um, Ryan Reynolds was in attendance, by the way, in on Ottawa last night with the uh, ownership change, which was kind of interesting. Um, but uh, Rutherford's comments basically said that he was hoping that they would be in a better position and that their systems need to change and that there needs to be big changes coming uh, down the pipe and that they have no structure. So to me, Dave, I look at this in three ways. This is now the third public shot that 
Rutherford has taken at his coach. Uh, one was the only um, one-year extension, and then he made similar comments a couple of weeks ago, and now this is the third time. And poor Bruce Boudreaux kind of like having to question, take questions from the media. How do you handle this? And he basically said, uh, I've been around a long time. Uh, these are just be things that will go in into the book that I eventually will not write. Um, I, I don't know. For me, Dave, and you can weigh in here, of course, but for me, it's like if you're going to fire him, then fire him. If you want changes to be made, then instill changes. But taking shots across, you know, from from your office and uh, doing that, I, I just don't understand what you accomplished other than damaging team morale and coaches because if you do this you're giving power to your players because you're basically taking shots at the coach you hired but did they hire did, was was Boudreaux Rutherford's hire or was Rutherford brought in after Boudreaux took over the team I'm, I'm trying to remember the timeline last year of how the dominoes fell I believe Rutherford came in after Boudreaux was named the interim head coach but here, here's that's, but, but beyond like that's right you are right but, now that but, I think about it yeah. but beyond like messing with sort of that timeline I'll say this Brock the Vancouver Canucks for the bad start they had to the year they've somewhat put things together the last 10 days or so. So to me, the timing of what Rutherford is doing is actually a little bit ill-timed. The team is 4-3-3 in their last 10, but part of those six losses in the 3-3 that I mentioned were still part of that opening salvo of losing for this team. They're starting to put it together. So I, I would be leery of the GM and the president of hockey operations being a little too mouthy at this point because it feels like the team had turned a corner. And if you consider the fact that so many of their losses had to do with blown leads in the in the early part of the season anyway, I would say the panic button in Vancouver is no longer flashing. The panic button is still there. It's still on the console, but it's no longer demanding this kind of scrutiny and this kind of attention. I think this team should be building on positives right now, which they are. The other side of it being they had a very major injury to Quinn Hughes, and he is on the mend as well, on the way back. I would say right now this team is starting to get things in order. Now is not the time to be making your coach feel the heat of the hot seat. That was two weeks ago, not today. Yeah, and also on the injury front, you know, uh, Brock Besser came back uh, from injury. So there, there is a bunch, of, a bunch of individuals coming back. And I actually think, credit to Vancouver, I actually think Vancouver is playing for their coach right now. I think, I think that, you know, I don't, think a lot of the players agree with what Rutherford is saying. I think they do like Bruce Boudreau. He's been around. He's done it for a long time. Remember that his record was um, was pretty crazy. Let me see if I can find it. I have it written. Um, but yeah, his, his record was uh, 32, 15, and 10 uh, when he took over um, with the team last year. So I mean, to me, this, this deserves, you know, something. And I think that he's Building that, I think you need to just, as you point out, rightfully so, just kind of calm down a little bit, I think, and see where the chips lie. Because remember, you're only 14-ish games into the season, 13, depending on who's played. But, you know, I I think we should all just calm down a little bit and 
watch where the chips fall. They're also only one point out of a playoff spot as of where they sit this morning with a game against Montreal tonight. They win the game in Montreal tonight. They're in a wild card spot. They're in a playoff spot, right? So I, I, I get perhaps that Jim Rutherford says, we want more, we want more, don't rest on your laurels. Now's not the time to push that button. Now, if they lose to Montreal tonight and then they continue to, they lose a few more games on this East Coast swing, okay, now we're having a different conversation. But yeah, I, I didn't like, I didn't like where Jim Rutherford punched that button uh, earlier this week. I would have, I would have done it a couple of weeks ago. And now to his credit and to the credit of their general manager and the organization, they did go make a couple of small trades as the wheels were coming off. And it seems that stabilized the team as well. So I would say the Canucks right now are at that point where they are putting things together. So let's not be too uh, dismissive of where they're at. And yeah, I don't, I don't really like what Jim Rutherford did there. Although Jim Rutherford is known as being a guy who shoots off the hip. He did it when he was in Pittsburgh. He did it when he was in Carolina. He likes, he likes to be a little chatty with the media. And the thing I really don't like is when you played 13 games, why are you going back talking about your structure in training camp? Like, why is that even a thing? If you didn't like your structure in training camp, do something about it at that point. Don't come into this at, at 13 games and say, well, I've seen tendencies continue through the training camp because as we pointed out, I do think the Vancouver Canucks deserve some credit as to what has taken place here. And again, we could be having a whole n- another conversation in exactly 12 hours if they happen to lose or 24 hours uh, if they happen to lose to Montreal. But right now, calm down a little bit I think Brock a team that I believe should be hitting the panic button is the Calgary Flames they lost their sixth consecutive game last night admittedly to a good New Jersey Devils team Nico Hishier had a nice one goal and one assist game as he's trending towards a 85 point season they've also seen great performances from Jesper Bratt on his way to a on pace for a hundred point season New Jersey Devils are good but the Calgary Flames six in a row this is where I start thinking about the panic button Brock Yes, and I and I'm thinking about it as well with their coach. Uh, obviously, he's he's a guy who who's been around Daryl Sutter. He's a hard nosed coach. I mean, they cool. just gave him they just gave him an extension, Brock. We can't be firing the guy right after we gave him an extension three weeks ago. No, we're not we're not firing the guy. But but the question I I would have to ask you, Dave, is the is the is how much does he have? left in his tank. I, I, he gave him an extension, but do, does he, Daryl Sutter have a lot left in his tank? Because is his game style the way of the new NHL? I'm not sure, but obviously Calgary believes in it because they just gave him an extension. But I, I see a team kind of lost on the ice out there. I, I, you know, when you watch them, it's kind of like they, they get things rolling and then the wheels kind of fall off in, in the middle of a period. I, I don't know what to make of Calgary. Obviously, Sutter is a guy that they believe in, but we'll see how this goes long term. I don't I certainly don't think they're going to get rid of him after making an extension, of course. But it's something that over time we're going to have to look at, because right now I'm looking at Calgary going, this team doesn't look like it has an identity anymore. Nazem Kadri is a very good hockey player. He's not Matthew Kachuk. They have some similarities in their game, but he's not Matthew Kachuk. Jonathan Huberto is a very talented, skilled winger in the sport of hockey. 
he's not he's not Johnny Goudreau, right? So you've you've had downgrades at those positions. So a lot of the things that Calgary was doing last year, which was when their first line was going, they were playing with speed and pace, and they could score a bunch of goals. As Jeff Ryman said about a million times on the show, they were the best line in hockey. You take two-thirds of that line away, you replace them with players who aren't as good as the guys who are on the top of that line, and all of a sudden those little cushions aren't there. We talked about poor goaltending yesterday. That continued last night for the for the Flames. So I would I would just say that there's a certain expectation here that the Flames were going to have some growing pains this year. They got off to a good start. They're now going through the losing streak. I would say before I'm going to formally smash that panic button, I give them four to five more games to sort of get to that 20-game mark, and we'll see where we're at. But as of this point, losing six in a row, never a great way to go, especially when you're getting beaten up by those New Jersey Devils, the emerging New Jersey Devils. Brock, and we also, got, Brock, we got to get out of here. is injured as well right now. So that's another. There you side go. To this. There you go. That'll that'll impact the two. You lose one of your top guys. Brock, we got to get out of here. Have a great day. You too. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of the Neutral Zone. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with possible snow flurries and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of 3. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or rain and wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour and a high of 5. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's sunny and a high of 6. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's sunny with clouds rolling in around noon and a high of 4. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a beautiful November day. It's sunny and a high of 11. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, there's showers off and on today and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 10. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with some snow or freezing rain in the morning and minus 4 is the high. For Johnny, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with a negative 13 as the high. Now, as we move into Alberta with Lethbridge, Alberta, this is where we're getting really cold temperatures. It's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later, and an extreme cold warning is in effect with wind chills of minus 40. The high today is minus 16. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny. They also have that extreme cold warning in effect with wind chills at minus 40. And the high today is minus 20. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds with increasing cloudiness as the day goes on and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of minus 12. In Kelowna, BC, clouds are clearing out this morning for sunshine and minus 4 is the high. And finally in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny and a high of 4. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we'll talk about Elon Musk's decision to axe Twitter's accessibility team. Kevin Shaw will share his reaction to that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's turn to the intersection of business and accessibility and technology. Twitter has reportedly laid off about half of their workforce included in the layoffs are the accessibility experience team, the human rights team, and others tasked with content curation. So what does that mean for the platform and what does it mean for the disability community that's formed within the platform? Let's dig a bit deeper with Kevin Shaw. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Great to chat with you once again. Good to chat with you. Great to be with you. So, Kevin, let's start with the general. What's your reaction to the reports that Twitter has axed their accessibility experience team? I, I'll be honest. I was a little surprised when I read the news. And after I had some time to absorb it a bit, um, I actually wasn't surprised because I think what Musk is doing is he's going in. I think he's, he's cleaning house and assessing um, where the value for the platform is actually being created. And uh, I think at some point they'll bring the accessibility team back, but in a different form. So uh, right now, I think it was a decision made on on value generation. Yeah, I had a similar thought as well. I wondered if it's possible that the new management team at Twitter just thinks they can offer accessibility in their own way. It's possible. Um And I mean, really, you know, for a text-based platform, how much accessibility support do you really need to stay compliant? Um, There's going to be a lot of, of, uh, there'll there'll be a lot of adjustment over the next couple of years as uh, things like the ACA rolls out in Canada. Europe obviously has their own accessibility standard. There's the ADA in the US. So they're going to have to stay compliant on those things. And maybe the, the management team at Twitter is saying, hey, um, we're, we're going to bring some accessibility people on for business as usual just to make sure that we're not sued. And uh, in terms of new product offerings, they're, they're, you know, there's, there's talk of bringing Vine back and, and um, you know, having a competitor to TikTok. So there, there's going to be need for accessibility stuff in the future. But I think right now the accessibility team is saying, hey, let's – or the management team is – saying, hey, let's let's just do sort of the bare minimum for accessibility before we actually start to really think about this strategically. Kevin, one of the, when we spoke last time, we talked about some of the risks that exist when an application or a website goes through a full-blown redesign or a redevelopment and how that may yep. end up turning off some consumers or turning some customers. I, I have to confess, I, I've, I've never been in a situation where there's been a full-blown management changeover, ownership changeover. But but what can happen there in terms of new owners coming in and saying, listen, we we want to do things differently here. Is, isn't there always sort of an anticipation that the user experience is going to change? Well, look, accessibility isn't going away. Uh, they've done a lot of great work with accessibility uh, at Twitter. So, uh, you know, tomorrow the platform is not all of a sudden going to be inaccessible. And uh, I don't think that's going to be the case in, in six months. Uh, there is a risk, obviously, with with a changeover in management. Maybe, look, they don't understand accessibility. They don't get accessibility. I doubt that's the case. I, I don't think that they're going to all of a sudden become in, inaccessible because, you know, Elon Musk is a is a spiteful person that says, "Hey, we don't want to make this, uh, you know, accessible to everyone," and you know, it's all about the bottom line. Um, I think they recognize that accessibility has a has an impact on on ROI and. 
because of that, I think that they're going to do accessibility in a different way. And yes, there's going to be some some near-term risk, but in the long term, I, th I think that the, that accessibility is ultimately going to be a good play for everybody involved. Let's zoom out here a little bit, Kevin. What are some of the broader implications that you imagine are going to occur here with Twitter? We have seen uh, th th people maybe are overstating the amount of folks who fled the platform. You know, people are talking about hundreds of thousands. I, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know if you can actually really measure that inside of inside a one week window. Uh, people are talking about some ad revenue that's dropped off in the last couple of weeks. But what are yeah. some of the broader implications here in your mind? So let me let me throw this back at you. Um, if I say to you, search, what website do you think of? Google. If I say shopping, what website do you think of? Amazon. If I say uh, movies and TV, what website do you think of? Netflix. So there's always going to be only one place on the internet for um, these types of things where we have an activity and we associate with that with, with one word. And Twitter started out as a microblogging platform, but it's really a it's really the website that helps people. So I shouldn't say helps people. It makes people think, and that's what their niche is. And that's not that's not going to go away. And the the broader implication of this is that Twitter is going to be the one place. It is the town square, like it or not, where people are going to go to have stimulating conversations about things that make people think. And um, there's only going to be one of that. And I know a lot of people have talked about. You know, I'm going to Mastodon, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to this other platform over here, and ultimately, it's going to fail. You want to be where everyone is talking and where mm. these ideas can be exchanged. It was so funny. I, I I was following along with some of the conversations because there has been a very strong disability advocacy, advocacy community that has formed on Twitter. And a lot oh, of folks sure. were chiming in on this on Friday night and they were saying, I'm going to Mastodon. Well, I'm going to Facebook. And then somebody else would reply, well, you know, I only really follow people that I know know on Facebook. And it was so funny to kind of see the whole thing splinter apart that solidarity <laughs> fell apart sort of within, within three or four tweets and solidarity was gone yeah. because, oh, we formed this great community, but I don't want you on my Facebook because I don't really know you. That's right. That's right. And uh, I mean, you know, the same thing could be said for like these sites like, uh, you know, Gab and Truth Social and, and uh, you know, all these other sort of these sites that have sort of popped up, um, you know, and not to get into politics here. But, um, you know, we've seen these groups kind of splinter off and it's like, well, look, if everyone isn't going to play on the one platform, it's like you you know you're you're nobody if you're not selling your product on Amazon. You're nobody if you're not you know if your movie or TV show is on Netflix and it's like hey I'm I've got, you know somebody's like hey I've got a band and we've got a CD release is it on Spotify? Well, no, then like you don't yeah. matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, can I find it? No, you can't. Well, <laughs> then I'm not going to listen. Uh Kevin, I once one of my favorite journalists in in the whole wide world, Derek Thompson. He writes for The Atlantic. He's a great podcast called Plain English. He's the best. He refers to Twitter as a library on the top floor and a food fight in the basement. And I've never heard a more apt description of what Twitter is. I think that's really, really accurate. Uh, Kevin, let's wrap up here. What do you think? Is Elon Musk regretting it all, spending $44 billion on a social media platform that was already somewhat struggling with monetization? I, I don't think so. I think he's looking at this in the long term. I think he's thinking, um, am I going to make that $44 billion back uh, in 10 years? And maybe it is with 
charging people eight bucks a month to to have um the blue check uh, the verification yeah (laughs) that's right um but i also think that you know i was just reading this morning that um that they're that they're creating official accounts on on twitter uh you know for for governments and companies and that sort of thing um but it's also going to be a really interesting thing to watch because facebook just announced today that they're laying off eleven thousand. Mm. Uh, people, so you know, things in the economy aren't going to go aren't going to go well in the next uh, in the next little bit here with with layoffs and hiring freezes coming in. So so we'll see we'll see where things go. I think uh, Elon Musk has a plan, and uh, you know if he can bring back things like Vine and um, really monetize the platform that way instead of through um, you know straight up ad revenue on the website, uh, then then he's got a good thing going, and it's. You know, I don't even use the Twitter website. I use a Twitter client and and I avoid mm. ads altogether. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Facebook slash Meta, you mentioned those layoffs, 11,000 people. It's almost like spending $100 billion on the metaverse. Uh, again, it's it's lo- it's long-term goals, but yeah. it's, a lo- it's a lot of money to be investing in an experiment. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Kevin, we're always grateful for your perspective. Thank you for making some time for us today. We know you're a busy man. Thanks for having me. That's Kevin Shaw with a look at what's going on with accessibility and some of the business at Twitter, 44 Billy, Elon Musk put down on that company. Coming up next, we'll talk about the Canada Disability Benefit. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will join me as we have a roundtable discussion on what we like about it, what we'd like to see, and where it can go from here. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. As we've talked about a whole bunch on this show, the framework for the Canada Disability Benefit continues to make its way through the halls of Parliament in Ottawa. Bill C-22 may still be a ways away from putting money in the pockets of Canadians with disabilities, but there's no reason why we can't talk about it and what we'd like to see inside the framework. So let's do that with Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasqua. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. And Marco, hello to you as well. Hello, hello. (laughs) So, Elizabeth, the benefit is top of mind for many Canadians with disabilities right now. What's your reaction to the benefit finally making its way towards reality, even if moving rather slowly? Yes, rather slowly is is a good summation. You know, the benefit was tabled first two years ago and then dissolved with Parliament. It was Bill C-35, and now we've seen the first reading in June of this year, 2022, and the second reading in October. So we're seeing that speed up. My concern is that, like never before, people with disabilities are living in unprecedented conditions around uh, not just poverty and unemployment, but also in terms of health. And so... I think a couple of things. I think it's long overdue, but I also think that it's only one part of a much bigger problem we have around employment equity, access to health and benefits, access to education. So the the bill is a good start, but it's that. It's a start. Yeah, I'm going to pull up that thread in a couple of moments. But Marco, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of offer an opening remark here as well in regards to the current economic situation. How does that add urgency for a benefit like this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everybody knows people with disabilities in many cases have additional costs when it comes to 
equipment, uh, healthcare, uh, pharmaceuticals. So all of this adds up. And in a time of inflation, uh, every Canadian is impacted right now, but more so within the disability community, because if you can't afford to put food on the table, in addition to the fact that you have uh, other things, medical costs to consider, um, nobody should have to have to make that choice whether or not they eat or they have the, the healthcare needs that they, they need. So I think that having the Canada Disability Benefit really brought to the table uh, and brought to the table quickly in a way that makes sense really will support a lot of Canadians to sustain themselves, especially in these uncertain times. Let's try to put some uh, a practical term on this. The framework, again, still being sorted out and included in that is the amount of the benefit and understanding that every province has their own different levels of disability assistance and their own cost of living. I understand this question may be a little bit unfair, but Elizabeth, what do you think the number should be? <laughs> oh, well, <clears throat> of course you had to ask me that one. I think, I mean... I think you're right. I think there's a number of factors. Geography is a huge part of it, right? So the cost of living in Toronto is very different than the cost of living in a in a smaller town, but in different ways. So rent might be more expensive here in Toronto. In a smaller town, rent might be cheaper, but maybe you're paying more for food mm. or you're paying more for transportation mm-hmm. because you're having to spend money on taxis to get around. When I lived in a very small town in southern Ontario, the public transit really wasn't, the infrastructure wasn't there. So you're spending more on taxis. So I think there's a couple of things that need to go into what that number could look like. So so geography, as we've talked about, is one thing. But I also think the person's income. So $200 might be a lot for somebody on the Ontario Disability Support Program, where people can get up to now a maximum of $1,200 a month. That would be a huge difference. But for somebody else who's perhaps making a little bit more, that $200 might be a nice to have, but maybe not a need to have. So I think, you know, the person's income needs to go into the factor. Geography needs Mm -hmm. to go into the factor. What other expenses are they paying? Marco mentioned a great point around health. So are you paying for medical expenses? Are you paying out of pocket for attendant services or PSWs? Are you paying out of pocket for nursing care to come in? So I think that there needs to be, I don't think it should be one number. I think that the circumstances of each person need to be taken into account and that the geography, the person's situation financially, as well as the the person's perhaps age. What other benefits are they getting? Are they getting OAS? Are they getting ODSP if they're living in Ontario? So I think a number of factors need to go into finding the amount that's right for each individual circumstance. I think you did a nice job of kind of squirming out of my question. I think that's, I, I think that's you know, fair. I, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I, I think I think you put the right caveats in there. But but I but I'm going to come back to you before I go to Marco okay, here. Okay, I'm not but, I'm not off the hook. But, right. but, I'll, but, I'll, but, I'll, but, I'll, but I'll put my, I'll lay my own cards on the table too. In the sake of fairness and transparency, I'll lay my own on the table too. I think that at this point, we should be looking at almost $750 a month being the number given to Canadians who have disabilities, who are on this, who are on provincial government assistance. I think that we should be trying to get the overall monthly number a little closer to $2,000 total. I, I know that's still not necessarily enough money, but I think there would be some reasonable compromise there to use that as a universal building block to then sort of do a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, Elizabeth, which is figuring out the actual the, the actual circumstances that could impact the number. But I think we should really be trying to get people's monthly incomes up to yeah. about $2,000 a month. I, that's the number that I kind of come on. And that's where I say $750 is approximately the number as I carry from province to province and the various supports. So Elizabeth, I'm bouncing the ball back to you. 
Okay, I'll, I, I've got the ball. And I think, you know, it's interesting when I when I was doing some research for the show today, I was looking at one bedroom apartments in Toronto. And, you oh, know, gosh. they range anywhere from lowest 12 to 1300 up to 2100. So again, what your number would do is allow somebody to get a one bedroom apartment and still have a good amount of money left over for food and other expenses. Because at the end of the day right now, what we're seeing with the current benefit here in Ontario is people either don't have enough money for rent or they're paying rent. And then like Marco said quite accurately earlier, they're having to make decisions about what other expenses they can afford. Marco, I, I stayed with Elizabeth there for a while, so feel free to elaborate a little bit if you want to on this as well. But where do you land on the number? Yeah, I actually agree with you, Dave. I think around the $2,000 mark in total sounds about right to begin with. Uh, you know, cost of living here in Vancouver is not any cheaper. In fact, if anything, it Oof, could be a little bit more, I think. Ooh, it, yeah. yeah, so so the thing is, is like with the PWD supports in and of themselves, I remember when I used to be on PWD supports when I was about 18, 19 years old, I remember the amount of money that they were specifying, well, this is enough for your shelter. And this is, we're talking like almost 20, years ago and it was like five or six hundred dollars for shelter and that's how much they were deeming for shelter alone and i said i can't find a place for five or six hundred dollars like even if i agree to live in a box somewhere i'm gonna need to turn a light on right so <laughs> it's it's well one of said. these situations where we really do need to consider the factors that Elizabeth mentioned, uh, not just the factors of the province, but the factors of the individual and then the individual's city. Uh, because as you say, you can't just say British Columbia. If you're in the interior of BC, it's much different than you're living in the downtown uh, core of Vancouver or other some of the other uh, major metropolises, right? So uh, we really just need to make sure that we're not adding to the poverty issue and to homeless population, particularly among those the disability community because they might not necessarily have the supports to help them get out of that situation, whereas others may uh, find themselves in a situation where they can have at least some familiar supports um, to help them get to the next stage, right? So, I mean, that mm. part does scare me. In this moment, this benefit really is being crafted or it appears it's being crafted to assist people with disabilities living below the poverty line. Here's where we get into where it evolves and some of the points that both of you have raised here. As it evolves, Marco, would you be in favor of the benefit being extended to people with disabilities who might be employed but are still making lower incomes, perhaps at a sliding scale? As you make more money, you may receive a slightly, a slightly smaller federal benefit. But, but to me, that might be something to offset what, we'd, what we call the disability tax for working class mm. people with disabilities. What do you think about creating some kind of sliding scale here? Again, maybe understanding there would be a cutoff number. Like, for example, if you make more than $98,000 a year, you don't get full sure. RDSP benefits. You don't get the $3,500 a year in terms of grants and bonds. You only get $1,000 yes. a year. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying $98,000 is the number in this case, but I'm saying <laughs> what do you make of a sliding scale to say, hey, someone actually actually has a job, maybe they're a little bit underemployed, they're yep. still dealing with things like the disability tax that, that we pay as, sure. as you both have identified. What do you make of creating a sliding scale here? I definitely think that a sliding scale is a good idea. Now, let me uh, preface that by saying that I don't think that just handing out uh, reams of money is a good idea for the country in general. Uh, but I do think that having a sliding scale where people have the opportunity um, to assess what they're going to need within uh, their disability needs is really, really important. Uh, for example, uh, like for example, I wouldn't qualify right now for PWD supports because of the level of income that I make. However, it used to be back in the 70s and 80s for PWD supports that 
if you were a person with a disability that was identified on your taxes, you would get PWD supports whether or not your income was a certain level or not. Now, uh, obviously, I missed the boat on that one because I don't get grandfathered into a situation <laughs> like that. However, as we age, our needs change. And so our pharma, as I said earlier, our pharmaceutical needs might change in terms of medication. Mm -hmm. The needs for the types of equipment that we need may change. And thereby, having that additional income to make sure that we're still above water in these situations, I think is going to be really important. So you said the perfect word, sliding scale is probably where, where we should look at. Elizabeth, I, I want to add another caveat before I bounce you a similar question. I don't want this okay. to be perceived as me saying I'm in favor of clawbacks because we've seen that as a huge issue inside right. ODSP, for example, where yeah. somebody starts working, they make a little income. Uh-oh, you just lost a lot of your provincial disability. I'm talking about creating the sliding scale at a number where somebody's already making a strong working class income before there'd be any kind of clawback or any kind of sliding scale kicking in. So, Elizabeth, what do you make of my sliding scale idea? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are that are really good about that. I think the first thing is that a lot of people with disabilities, we know this, are underemployed. So we might have some income, but it's not a lot. And we're using our income and our disability benefits together to cobble together a living wage. So I think what that does is it allows you, if you're if you're working a little bit, to still have some income support. And then as you build up and you're working more, hopefully, if that's something you're able to do, the, the benefit um, is perhaps decreased depending on the income. But I, th I think the, the thing about this is, again goes back to our earlier theme, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So it's really looking at the person's situation and what do they need. Mm. We've only got about five, well, four to five minutes left here, guys. So these last two questions, if we can be a little bit more concise, because I don't mean to be that guy, but I believe you've both identified this. Is this perhaps some window dressing? Isn't the issue here lacking disability income assistance? Isn't the issue a disability tax credit that can actually be quite difficult to sign up for? Elizabeth, feel free to tell me if I'm off base here. No, you're not off base. I think there's there's bigger issues. And I alluded to this at the beginning of the show around equitable employment, education, access to health care, uh, even the tax credit. Like you say, not only is it difficult to sign up for, you have to pay to get the forms filled out. So if you're already on mm -hmm. a reduced income and you're having to go to a doctor and pay that fee, that might dissuade people from actually doing it. So it's, it is window dressing in the sense that there are bigger systemic issues that we need to deal with as our population continues to age and age into disability. Marco, I think you alluded to some of these factors as well in, in the conversation as it's moved along. But am I off base in saying, is this maybe a little bit of window dressing, isn't there perhaps a larger systemic shakeup that we can do here? Uh, 100%, Dave. I, I think it is a little bit of a window dressing. I think like all, you know, politicians understand that, uh, you know, in order to get voters and individuals on their sides, they got to say the right things. You know, I can understand that aspect of things, but also we do need to see change implemented, right? And so I think that, um, you know, having, uh, you know, potentially an increased tax credit uh, to help to offset these things, as, as Liz Elizabeth said, uh, you know, inclusive employment is a huge factor, and I'm a huge proponent of mm -hmm. those things that you've heard me mm -hmm. talk about in uh, access on the show. Um, so uh, having access to jobs um, that increase increase the quality of life for individuals and actually have them feel like they're contributing to the overall economy, I think is probably the first step. And then an increased tax benefit would be a little bit of nice icing on the cake. So let's play inside my premise for just a moment, though, and say the issue at play is a lacking provincial commitment to disability support. Marco, how would you feel if the disability support and accessibility file became entirely federal? 
Well, that's an interesting one. You know, there are pros and cons with that, right? I, I think if we go back to the original points in our conversation here, I don't know if just making it strictly federal is a good idea because every pro uh, province operates a little bit differently and the lifestyle within those provinces operates a little bit differently. So, I mean, there could be benefits because then you're talking about an umbrella program that benefits all Canadians. Uh, but in, my question then would be in what way and how much? How much does it benefit us? Mm. Uh, so I guess that would be my comment there. <laughs> Even some Albertans with disabilities dislike the federal government, you know, like there'd probably be some a correlation there. Elizabeth, what do you make of the idea of perhaps what, what would you make? How would you feel if the disability assistance and accessibility file became entirely a federal one? I think quite honestly, you know, just to go back to Marco's point, it's about making sure that the supports are there, whether they're provincial or federal. I think it's making sure that whatever file it is, that it supports that people can live on and it supports that people mm -hmm. feel like they're able to access the services they need and that they're able to do so in a timely manner. So I think that the thing at the end of the day is the file itself really needs to be looked at in terms of how people are accessing these supports and are, is this a living wage and how do we support people who can work to work. So I think to me, it's not so much who arrests it with, but really critiquing the file in general. We've uh, talked about Bill well C-22 a lot on this show. We're going to continue to do it, but I'm so grateful that we could get both of your perspectives on this today. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you. And Marco, thank you as well. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye, Dave. Bye, Marco. That's Marco, that's Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller. We were talking about Bill C-22, the Canada Disability Benefit. Coming up after the break, we'll keep talking about money. Except uh, we'll be talking about the money you spend at auction. There's a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull up for sale. What would you pay for some bones? This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. No rum yet today, but there is an episode of Kelly and Company coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Margaret Weldon will be there for an In the Know segment, highlighting a couple of inclusive touring initiatives. Jim Crisco will tell you about a new project to boost mental health support for farmers in Alberta. And November 14th is World Diabetes Day, so registered nurse Leslie Depo will tell you all about that. Kelly and Company comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI audio. Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid and Alex Smythe for a quick chat here about a news story. Let's start by setting up the story before we say hello to Nizreen and Alex. A dinosaur fossil is expected to fetch $15 million or more at auction. Rita Foley digs up this report. The massive skull of a Tyrannosaurus rex was found on private land in South Dakota, says Sotheby's, which will auction it on December 9th. This is a 200-pound skull fossil, nicknamed Maximus. Sotheby's experts say Maximus is about 76 million years old, still has lots of teeth, but also has two big holes in the skull. Evidence of a fierce fight, they say, probably with another T-Rex. A spokeswoman says they don't know if that's what killed the animal. The fossil owner wants to remain anonymous. I'm Rita Foley. So let's talk about auctions with Nizreen and Alex. Hey, good morning, Nizreen. Good morning. And hello, Alex. Hey, Dave. Nizreen, have you ever bought something from an auction, whether it be a live auction, a silent auction, eBay? Have you ever gotten engaged in a bidding war? 
<laughs> when I was younger, uh, my family used to participate in in a silent auction at SickKids Hospital where the money goes for, you know, it's a donation. So um, you would get frames, artwork, whatever it may be, but you would put like a bit a bidding, uh, it would be a bidding war, basically. Um, but it was uh, fun times. I Ever since, I have not participated in anything like that. I just buy off Amazon like an addict. <laughs> just buy them straight up retail, straight up retail for Nazreen. No need for auctions. Yeah, you mentioned uh, how charities do the silent auctions. I have the majority of the art and photographs and frames in my house have been purchased at charity events. So I'll go LMC, I look at the silent auction, I find art that I like, and I end up bidding on the art and the majority of the art and photographs in my entire apartment are stuff that I've bought at silent auctions. Alex, what about you? Have you ever engaged in an auction? Yeah, I've done a few different ones. I've done the silent auctions, like Nazreen has said. And, uh, you know, there's a few times I've been to those types of events and and whatnot. Dave, as you mentioned, you know, you, you go around, you see, oh, this artwork is great and stuff. Apparently, I just have really expensive tastes because I, whenever I find something I, I like, I go and look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that has a, a few too many zeros for, for my budget, for my for my taste. So uh, I move on. But I've done also to like some online auctions, which kind of work similar to the silent auction where you're just going to constantly see, you know, what the highest bid is and you have the counting clock and you just kind of monitor this product or that depending on what you're trying to do. Okay, Alex, 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 money. I need specifics. What is the stuff you've been bidding on online? No, nothing too crazy. You know, it's like, oh, like little memorabilia things and like little kitschy stuff. Nothing like big. I'm not I'm not going big. I'm not spending hundreds of dollars on anything. I'm not buying dinosaur bones. As much as I would love to be able to have the money to get Maximus, I am getting like, you know, little knickknacks and things like that. Nothing big. I, I One of my biggest um wins i remember from a silent auction was years ago when i got the first two seasons of family guy uh like packaged into one that was that was like a big win for me nice and that's one that still stands out in my mind uh many many years later back when dvds still meant something and you yep. and having those dvds was like oh hey. my god i've got the family guy this is the good stuff they they still matter dave my collection of like over a thousand dvds still means something okay sir so you you watch yourself. DVDs still matter. Oh, I still have a bunch of mine too, my friend. Uh, how am I going to watch <laughs> Boogie Nights if I can never find it on my streaming services? Uh, Eliza Rocco, what's your experience with auctions? I, I've taken part in the charity auctions and silent auctions and all those kind of things, but my most memorable auction experiences is frequently when, when restaurants go out of business, they auction off all of their goods. Ooh. So I, I um, have signed up on this email thing where I get notified of big auctions like that. And while I haven't actually purchased anything, I was in a very, very intense bidding war for an uh, industrial label maker. Oh, my gosh. And it, it was intense. Um, it didn't get up that high, but eventually I was like, what am I, why do I need an industrial label maker for? Why, why did you want an industrial why label don't maker? You? <laughs> I just wanted it. I was like, I, I, I just, I want labels for things. This seems fun. I like that enabler shopaholic Nizreen is like ready to swing in there off the vine being like, why don't you want that Thank thing? You, I appreciate it. Can you forward these emails to me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will. Uh, let me ask you guys really quickly around the table here about what's become a very common form of online auction 
It's the upgraded airline seat that when you book your seat, the company that you book through will say there are X number of first class or business class tickets available for this flight that are up for auction. Would you like to make a bid? Eliza, would you make a bid? And it can be any, it can be modest bids. It can be like 40, 50 bucks. Would you throw one in for the possibility of getting yourself a business class or first class seat? throw one in for sure. I would not go too high. I'd maybe um, go back and forth a couple times, but uh, I, if, if there were other bidders, I'm probably not going to Yeah, it, it's it's a blind auction, so you don't get, oh. th- there's no bidding more that kicks in. You make your bid when you buy the ticket, and that's that. Okay, yeah, I'll do it then. Nazreen? I would do it if it was like 40, 50 bucks, so yeah, why not? I mean, for an upgrade to, to first class, I mean, at that point, yeah. you're going through priority security line. Although I, I, I don't know if that helps you, Nazreen. They might, they might still, they might still drag you aside because, uh, you know. Oh, from, oh for sure. It's, for sure. Way, it's <laughs> terrible and it's the way that it goes. But, uh, but you know, dinner, dinner on the flight, a little free meal on the flight, that goes a long way. And, uh, you know, lounge access, that's good stuff too. Alex, you just did some traveling yourself. Would yep. you make that bid, a blind auction bid for an upgraded seat? You know, Dave, you're reminding me, I, I, Used to do it all the time, uh, especially when I was traveling for postcards. Because, uh, especially with WestJet, because they they have this bidding process where you can you can put in like forty, fifty bucks. You know, like my I'm already flying to a location. But yeah, why not just throw a bit more money? I get a bigger seat. I I get a nice fed meal. You know, it's a bit more relaxing. I get to board first. I get to kind of walk to the front of the line, feel uh, very proper and uh, prim. But it, it really is dependent on the airlines because I, I enjoy doing it through WestJet. Air Canada, in my experience, don't really have it. It's just like, oh, yeah, you could upgrade. It's going to cost you like 400 bucks or 500 bucks yeah. to go from your standard seat to, to business class, whereas like WestJet's like, I've gotten it for $40 from a flight from Calgary to Toronto. It's like, it's not bad. You know, I'm, I'm a big guy. I like having more like room. So it's to me, it's definitely worth it to investigate. And then you you make the the decision whether or not how much are you willing to spend? I usually go for the bare minimum of whatever the bid is. I uh, I don't like getting on the plane first. I don't like people looking at me. Nazreen, thank you for this. Alex, thank you as well. And Eliza, thank you too. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.